In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent to Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the harpist fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Riley. So we're in a series going through the life of David, which is really a study of some Old Testament history books, First and Second Samuel. Uh, it's not something that you often hear sermons going just through Old Testament history books, uh, but it is a very important story for us as we uh, study this life of David, who's just this prominent figure throughout all the history of Israel. When you look at all ancient history, I've mentioned this before, but when you look at all ancient literature, the story of David is the longest narrative about a single character in all of ancient literature, not just in scripture, but in all of ancient literature. He's a very important figure. They spilt a lot of ink writing about David, all the details of his life. And today we come to one of those passages that's a defining moment for David. When this series started, before you got into the series, if you had never really learned much about David or explored much of his life, you probably knew about the encounters that David had with two different people. You probably have heard of David and Goliath. That's just made its way into the common vernacular. We're in March Madness right now. How many times have you heard David and Goliath story here? It happens all the time. And you probably heard about David and Bathsheba. For better or worse, all the amazing things that David had happen in his life, his life was defined by these two encounters with two, these two different people. And how different they were. How different 
They were. Goliath, this cruel monster of a man, coming to destroy. And David approaches Goliath in prayer and in courage and confidence that the Lord is going to deliver him. Bathsheba, on the other hand, this beautiful, delicate woman who is innocent, and David abuses his power and takes advantage of her. You see, it's not his enemies in the battlefield that conquer David, but it's his own sin that lives within. It's the enemy within that gets the best of David. And so today what I want to do is take a deep dive at this enemy within, this sin that we all struggle with, and, all, and it has the capability to take any of us down. You might be able to defeat the Goliaths in your life. You might be a master in the boardroom. You might be an expert in your field. But no one has conquered the enemy within on their own. Let's dive into this. I want to teach you four different things about sin today as we look at at, at David's life. Before I do that, let me give a quick disclaimer. Today we're talking about David and Bathsheba. Uh, if you have kids, uh, they, you can't have this conversation with a few conversations about things that might be like birds and might be like bees. Um, and so just, just giving you the disclaimer, you've been fairly warned. Uh, but I will not be, I won't be vulgar, obviously. Uh, it probably won't be clear uh, if, it's, if it's not time. But we'll see what happens. Uh, just, just let you know. Um, today we're doing this deep dive on sin. Four things about sin. First, no one is above it. Second, it is seductive. Third, it is destructive. And fourth, what do you do about it? No one's above it. It's seductive. It's destructive. And what do you do about it? Let's dive in. No one is above it. As we've studied David, one thing that we've seen through his writing of the Psalms and throughout his entire life, and even the reason why God chose David to be king of Israel, is that he is a man described as a man after God's own heart. And friends, if a man after God's own heart, who was chosen to be the true king, to to usurp the previous king that was a bad king, but he was chosen by God in this way, to be the king of Israel... If he can fall into destructive like the, sin like this, anyone can. Anyone can. If you can be a man after God's own heart and fall into such terrible spiral of destructive sin, anyone can fall into this. It is a, it is a scary reality that no one is above the terrible destructiveness of sin. I wish it weren't the case, but there's just too many examples to share to illustrate this. And it, it almost doesn't matter how many examples you hear. Most people still think that they're immune to the, quite the terrible depths that sin can take you. It's hard to convince you to take it seriously. I mean, I, I can just tell you, I could tell you, 
about a number of personal friends and acquaintances that I've had over the years as a pastor. I know other pastors, and I know many other pastors who've fallen into sin, sin similar to David's. If pastors aren't above it, nobody's above it. When I pastor a church where I don't see the effects of sin like this, my assumption isn't that it's not happening, but that people are good at hiding it. And my hope is that over time, we might be vulnerable with one another to where we can share our sin at the early stages and and work together, bear one another's burdens so that we might fight sin together. So many examples of high-name, high-profile people. I can think of one recently in the news. I'm not going to name names right now because there's no need. But one recently in the the news. A a man who had started ministries, spoken to thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and it didn't come out until after he had died that he was a repeat offender in similar ways to David. Just misconduct everywhere. And it's sad to see such destructiveness that can come from sin. So friends, let's just start here. If David can fall into this, anyone can. A man after God's own heart. No one is above sin. No one. Not you, not me, not anyone. So we all have to fight through it. But it leads us to ask the question of like, how? (laughs) How? How did David fall into such terrible sin. How could this happen? If he's a man after God's own heart, how can he fall into such terrible sin? And that's where we get sin is seductive. Point two, sin is seductive. You know, if you had woken David up that morning and said, hey David, today you're going to commit adultery and then you're going to conspire to have someone killed. Multiple other people are going to die in the process. You're going to lie and cheat your way through it and abuse your power in substantial ways. I think he would have probably disbelieved you. I don't think he would have said, yeah, that sounds right. Sounds like something I would do. No. Sin is not something that you jump completely into the deep end immediately. If someone says, this is where this, is, this road is going to take you, you would say, no thanks, I'm not going that way. But the thing with sin is that it's never... A to Z. Sin is always A to B. B to C. C to D. It's a slow, slippery slide into destruction. And as we get farther down there, by the time we get to like S or T, we might look around and be like, how did I get here? How did I get so far here? Sin is gradual and oftentimes unobtrusive to our lives. And we don't even notice until we've already taken the poison. It's already killing us. So let's look at David and how we got there. Uh, I just want to start at the very beginning of the passage. The very beginning of the passage, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings went out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So what do you notice here in this passage? What do you notice? Well, David 
did not go out to battle, even though it's the spring and the times when the kings go out to battle. That's an abnormality. And we don't know exactly why David stayed home, but I'll tell you this, none of this would have happened if he had gone to battle at the time when all the other kings go to battle. And so it leads me to believe, and I don't know this exactly, but I'm, I'm pontificating a little bit here, that David probably should have gone out. If it's the time when kings go out, go out to battle. But maybe he was getting a little too big for his pants. Maybe it's like, you know, I've been to a lot of battles. I can sit this one out. Sin is deceitfully slow. Verse 2, it happened. It happened. I love how it's described there. It's like, everybody knows what we're about to talk about if you've heard this before, but it happened. That's a very dramatic way of saying it. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. That's a normal place to walk in Israel at this time. It's a nice, cool spot to be. If I had a roof deck, I'd do the same thing. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And so he notices this woman bathing, and that's that. It seems unintentional at this point, but you can almost guarantee that that glance lasted a little bit longer than what anybody would be quite comfortable with there. It's one thing if he saw her, and another thing if he kind of examined the situation. And if you ask David where his downward spiral began, he would tell you it was that moment. That moment when I saw Bathsheba, that's when my downward spiral began. But when we look at the life of David, I would actually tell you that he's primed up for this thing to happen. When you get to this point in David's life, what are the embers of his heart looking like? What do we know about David's relationship with women up until this point? Well, we don't have a lot of details, but we do know that David had multiple wives. And having multiple wives, polygamy, is never something that is condoned in the Bible. God never says, Take more than one wife. That is never something that is pushed forward by God. It makes me think that David might already be starting to see women as objects for his own pleasure and not as fellow image bearers of God. And so what causes you to sin? Is it, can he look out and say, Bathsheba caused me to sin? She's the one being immodest. Nothing in this passage leads us to think that Bathsheba is committing anything wrong here. This is a story about a man and his sin. And what leads anyone to sin, it can never be someone else. But James 4 teaches us what causes fights and quarrels among you. Is it not that you, des you desire and you do not have, so you murder? It's your desires that cause you to sin, these unmet desires. So David, you know, he's walking out on the, on the roof of his house, and he has unmet desires. And he should have taken that to the Lord and, and prayed and repented at that moment, but he's being led astray by these desires. I don't think that you can blame Bathsheba, as I was saying. I've known a lot of Christian men who have tried to blame their problem with purity, with um, their problems with lust, on the way that other women dress, or the way that, the way that women might dress immodestly. And while the, Bible, the, while the Bible does have a lot to say about modesty, and I think that is an important uh, thing for Christians, you can never blame your sin on anyone else. I think that's really important for us to realize that today, that that's a principle about sin. You can never blame your sin on someone else. So when you say, 
I'm sorry I get angry. You know, you did this to me. It just made me that way. No, (laughs) that's on you. Your sin is on you, not anyone else. You cannot blame anyone else for your sin, and especially when it comes to sexual sin. I appreciate, and this past week, David French, who's a journalist, uh, put it like this, and I thought that his, the way that he put this was really well stated. He said, placing responsibility for male purity on women harms women. It creates an impossible burden. You cannot oppress women enough to protect men from themselves. You can ban porn, ban explicit TV and movies of all types, put women in long dresses, prohibit makeup, and require courtship contracts, and you will still not solve the problem of sin. David is to blame for his own sin. And it keeps spiraling out of control from here. So what happens? Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. And, and one said, Is not that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I've always read this passage as like, okay, that's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. That should have snapped them out of it. Like, hey, that's a person, not an object for my pleasure which is always a good thing when, when someone's struggling with, with lust. It's like people, not objects. That person's made in the image of God. That's someone's daughter, which means a lot to me now. That's, a, that's good fuel to fight because I have a daughter. I'm like, oh gosh, no. That's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. But it goes a lot deeper than that because it almost sounds like his messenger is saying, isn't, hey David, they're trying to say this gently to him. Like, hey David, isn't that Bathsheba? You know, Eliab's daughter, Uriah's wife. David knew those men. Those weren't some mystery men from the Bible. When you read the rest of this Bible, you realize and at the end of 2 Samuel, it lists David's mighty men, or kind of like his bodyguards, his most trusted soldiers. Both Eliab and Uriah are mighty men of David. He knew them already. It, it, doesn't it just add a layer of wickedness? to what he's doing, that he knew this woman. He knew who she was the daughter of. He knew who she was the, uh, the, the wife of. And not only that, it goes farther. Eliab's father was David's most trusted counselor. Bathsheba's grandfather was his most trusted counselor. And he's going to sin against them all in this way. What does he do? He abuses his power. And he sends for them. Verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself for her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Verse 5, The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Friends, this sounds like a Me Too moment if I've ever heard one before. This is an abuse of power by the most powerful man in the entire land. And he's trying to keep it quiet, but there's a problem, there's a pregnancy, and you can't keep that quiet. And so he knows that her husband's at war, so it'll be obvious that something happened. And so David now, he's getting into step D, step E of his sin cycle. You know, he's, he's acted on his sin. It started with a glance, then, it's, then it went to sending for, who, who is that? And then it went to sending asking her to come over. Then it went one thing to the next so that he committed this adultery. But now he has to cover it up. You see, sin leads to sin. It's seductive. It leads to more sin. Satan wants to ruin us. 
David has to send for her husband, who's at battle right now, fighting the Ammonites. There's a, a, a cool thing that's going to come up in just a minute with the Ammonites. Um, he sends for, the, for Uriah, and he says, Hey, Uriah, how's Joab doing? Like, he's like trying to be casual about it. How's the, how's the general? How's the general doing? Oh, yeah, why don't you go home? You seem tired. Uriah has to be like, really? I'm one of your mighty men. You're going to pull me off the line to ask me how the general's doing? But that's fine, you know? I'll just sleep here, wait. I'm going back to war, though. I'm a noble man. And so he doesn't go home. I love even what the, the scripture says. It, it says that David sent uh, Uriah home and sent a present with him. It was like, here's some roses, here's some wine, a very white record. Go home. Go home, Uriah. He's trying to get him to go home. But Uriah is noble, and he won't do it. And so instead, what David does is he gets him intentionally drunk and hopes that he'll find his way home with less, less mental fortitude at that moment, uh, less nobility. Uh, you know, alcohol has that tendency uh, to deprive people of nobility at times. But Uriah still refuses to do it. And it's an interesting technique. I think this is a Bible deep cut. I'm not going to give you the full story. I just think this is super interesting. Genesis 19, um, if you go all the way back there, you, you read about Lot and his daughters who used the same method of abusing alcohol uh, to, to elicit their family. And you can go back and look at it, but it's interesting because uh, Lot and his daughters, that's how the Ammonite people were created, which are the very people that Uriah is fighting against. And now David's using this technique. Uh, that came from Genesis 19. It, that's a deep cut, but I think it's kind of a cool coincidence or a providence of the Lord, should we say, to put it like that. The Bible's beautiful. So what does David do at this point? Uriah refuses to, to do, to go home. So David remembers this old trick that Saul did to him, and he says, go, I want to put Uriah on the front line so he'll die. Basically, it's a murder. And so he, he writes uh, a warrant for Uriah's murder, puts his seal on it, hands it to Uriah, and sends Uriah back to war. So Uriah has to bring his own death warrant into the, into the place of war. He hands it to the general. The general reads it. You've got to imagine this is a weird place to be as a general. He knows Uriah. Uriah's been one of his most faithful soldiers. And then he has to send Uriah and a small band of men to the very front lines where they're massacred where they're just killed. Even though they're in control of this battle, he has to send him forward to die. And so David commits adultery and murder now. And then he takes Bathsheba as his wife to finish the cover-up, and he's all the way at Z. Because it, it says, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, friends, that's how sin works. It's A to B to C to D. It always starts with an unmet desire. Some desire that's in you, whether it be comfort, security, power, peace, whatever it might be. It can be a good desire that develops into a small secret fantasy or a sin. Oftentimes our fantasies fuel our, our sinful tendencies. And these little sins, they lead to bigger sins, and bigger sins lead to destruction. The problem with sin in our life, for most of us here today, is not that 
you are so overcome by a sense of sin that you do not know where to turn. The problem that most of us have with sin here today is that you do not perceive its presence in your life whatsoever. And so these embers of sinful desires are burning in your heart, and they're starting to light aflame the walls. And you do not even recognize the sin that's going on in your own heart until the entire house is on fire and you need help. But what the Bible teaches us is that one of the most important things for us to be doing as Christians is to be seeking out where those embers of unmet desires that are going to lead to our downfall and destruction, where are those hiding in our lives? And we have to confess those and repent of those early and often. We have to stamp out the embers of destruction that live in our life so that we can not destroy ourselves. We have to be continually repenting of those things so they don't develop into large things. I just want to talk about briefly how they can develop into large things. I want to show you how destructive sin is. The third point, sin is destructive. This one's shorter. I just want to show you, reveal the destructiveness of sin in David's life here. Imagine the position that David puts those messengers in when he commands them to go get Bathsheba. They know what he's doing. That's an odd place to be put in as a messenger. The, the king told you to do something, but it's an obvious, simple thing. Think of the position that he put those generals in. They care about those soldiers that went to fight with Uriah. All of this is to cover a one-night stand by the king. When Uriah was sent into the battle to be killed, it was other men that were killed. They, not one man died for David's sin. Multiple men died for David's sin. Bathsheba loses her husband. She later loses her baby. And then David starts this familiar pattern of treating women like objects. This, this familial pattern of treating women like objects. You look at David's son Solomon. Solomon had more wives than David did. That was his downfall. The ripple effects of sin are huge. And so sin might not seem destructive at the moment, but here's what I'm trying to tell you, is that those small embers of sin, they can become very destructive. You have to be looking for things like selfishness, things like pride, things like gossip, things like just a little bit of greed, things like impatience. You have to be killing your sin. John Owen puts it this way, uh, you have to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We have to kill our sin or it will be killing you. And so the last thing I want to talk about today is what to do with it. What do you do with your sin in this situation? Sin is seductive and it's destructive. It separates you from God. But what do you do with it? It's not enough that you simply tell yourself, stop it. That's not enough for you to just be like, oh, I see that sin. I'm going to stop doing it now. That's not the pattern laid out in Scripture for us. Now, anytime you stop doing sin, that is a good thing. But there's a better way to handle this than just telling yourself to stop it. One of the markers of Christian maturity is not that you necessarily see less sin in your life. Yes, you should grow and stop certain sin patterns. But as you grow as a Christian, this might be really discouraging to some of you and really encouraging to some of you. Uh, as you grow as a Christian, you don't actually see less sin. As you grow as a Christian, you actually see more sin in your life. It's like, oh, the, the depths of sin that are in here. 
just grow and grow more every year. I feel more sinful today as a 34-year-old than I I did when I was a 24-year-old. And I can tell you all these different ways that God's delivered me and he's grown me, but at the same time I look at my life and I'm like, oh, I'm such a prideful, selfish, impatient person. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, little sin requires a little Savior. But great sin requires a great Savior. And my Savior is great, so therefore my sin must also be great. So when you see the embers of sin in your heart, what do you do? When you see the seeds of selfishness and gossip and lust and rage, what do you do? The first thing I want you to note and make sure of is, is this, and this is one of the most important things for us. On this side of the New Testament, we know God's redemptive plan. The first thing that we have to do is look to Jesus. We have to look to Jesus. One of the community commitments for us as a church is good news before good advice. That's something that we say to each other, that we speak good news before we speak good advice. And so good advice would be like, hey, that sin's going to kill you. Stop doing that. And the world would agree with that. But we would say, hey, you were made for more than that. You were made to glorify God. And Christ has died for that sin. Live in freedom, friends. Live in freedom because of what he has done for you. We would tell people to look to Christ. Octavius Winslow puts it this way. This is another Puritan from a long time ago. Uh, He says, for every one look that you take at yourself, every time you see your own sin, take ten looks to Christ, who is eternally forgiving and kind and long-suffering and patient. Jesus is the eternal king. He is the greater and better David. He is the chosen son of God, a true man after God's own heart. He knew no sin, yet God made him sin for your account. God made him sin in that he took on your sin, the sin that you feel convicted of. He took on and paid the penalty for it. He died the death of a sinner so that we might have life with God. And so when I tell you to look to Christ, I'm trying to remind you, you were not condemned for your sin. If you're trusting in Christ, he was condemned for your sin. You cannot be condemned, that sin will not be condemned for twice. Christ was condemned for it. Friends, Jesus joyfully accepts you as the big epic failure and mess up that you are. That's what grace is all about. God's grace is so kind. We do not point fingers and say sinners. We point fingers and say, beloved child of God, broken, messed up person, there is room for you. There is room for you with God's grace. There's always room for God's grace. And the second thing, and this I'm going to end here, is repent. We have to repent. We're going to do We're going to do a deeper dive into David's repentance in two weeks. Next week, we're going to look at a sermon by Paul about David and Jesus during Easter. But in two weeks, we're going to take a deep dive into how David came to repentance and learn what we can learn about repentance in ourselves. But I can't not talk about repentance. Friends, it's always, if you're under the weight of sin this morning, which you might be, I hope you are, Lord willing, it's a good thing. It's always better to come into the light. Oftentimes when we repent, what we call repentance is just kind of like a a vague feeling of guilt and then like a personal promise not to do it again. But repentance requires a contrite heart. 
It requires confessing it to the Lord. And it requires this remorse of your sin and then running away from it. Repentance is not something you do just at the beginning of your Christian life, but it's something you continually do throughout your Christian life. Uh, Martin Luther said that all of the Christian life is repentance. It's something we're constantly having to do. We have to be stamping out those embers early and often before they catch fire throughout our entire life. So church, let's, let us run to Christ. Let us be bold in confessing our sin because we have nothing to fear. Christ has paid the penalty. You don't have to worry about what is going to happen. It's always better. Sin is destructive. It is seductive. Where you are now, it's better to come into the light today than come into the light tomorrow because you're going to be deeper in it tomorrow. You might think, oh, I just need to clean up my house a little bit. I just but you're cleaning up your house while it's on fire. <laughs> go, to, go to the fire hydrant. Turn on the water and experience the water of life, this truth, this refreshing thing. You will be so thankful. You will be so thankful because it is sweet. It's so good to have the forgiveness of God, to know that you don't have to bear your own sin by yourself. And friends, we are here with you. We're a church. That's what God's called us to do. We are not a museum for saints to look at how awesome each other are. We are a hospital for sinners. That is why we are here, because we are sinners. And so friends, open your wounds. Take the bandages off. Let us see. Let the great physicians see. You can trust him. It might hurt. But a surgeon, he has to hurt you to get the cancer out. In the Narnia books, I think about Eustace, this dragon, he sees his sin. He's, he's a terrible little man. I love how he's introduced in Narnia. He's introduced as, there was once a boy named Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's how C.S. Lewis introduced him. And he's a terrible kid, but... He sees his sin when he's turned into a dragon. And Aslan, the, the Christ figure in, in the books, he takes his claws, and to get the, the dragon skin off, he has to sink his claws deep into his, his dragon scales and pull it off, and it hurts like anything. But then Aslan is able to free him from his own sin. Friends, do you trust God's claws in your life today? It could be painful but it is always good, always good. He is kind. Let's run to him today. He gave us a, a sacred meal that we practice each week to be reminded of what he did to pay for our sin because his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us, church. So we take this in, rem in remembrance of what he has done for us. If you're a Christian here with us today, I encourage you to receive this meal. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't experienced that fire hydrant of joy, of living water in your life, let me encourage you. Let's receive that today. <laughs> let's receive that joy of salvation. You can be baptized with us next week, which is actually what Eustace did. After he came out of the dragon scales, Aslan picked him up and threw him into a pool of water. 
You can be baptized with us and you can receive communion with us next week. It would be joyful. Let's stand and pray as we finish today off with a, with a closing song. So stand with me, friends. Fathers, we come to your throne with grace. We are grateful for what your Son has done for us. That we're not under the weight of our own sinful selfishness anymore. That he has freed us from that. And God, we pray that in him we will find the desires of our heart met. That we will not be trying to satisfy us with worldly things anymore, but we will be satisfied by what you have done for us. God, renew us again. Remind us again of our, of our salvation, of the way that you've saved us. Never leave us alone, God. May we receive that word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.